Well, this morning, we, uh, we pick back up with our sermon series called The Story. Together, we're going through the entire Bible in about 31 Sundays and picking up on all the major themes and stories from the Scriptures. We took a break during the season of Advent, and then last week, we heard from our senior pastor, Mark Rowland, about the vision that we believe God has for Anderson Hills throughout this coming year of 2020. And so now we're ready to get back to the story. When we last heard from the story just before Thanksgiving, we had just finished talking about the nation of Israel's first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Now, there were some ups and downs during the reigns of these three kings, but the nation had been one. It was a united kingdom, and all 12 tribes of Israel were together King David had secured the borders of the nation, and so Solomon lived during a time of great peace. He was wise beyond all measure because he had asked the Lord for wisdom, and the Lord had given him the desires of his heart. Solomon also amassed great wealth, and his reputation was so grand and so good that rulers from all the other nations of the world came to Israel to see just how he did it. But alas, the United Kingdom of Israel was not going to last. Its days were numbered. And this morning we're going to explore, based on our readings from this week's Bible reading plan, what happened next. But first I want to take a minute and reflect on Solomon's leadership legacy. Now, I already mentioned that under Solomon, wealth and wisdom were in abundance throughout the kingdom. He accomplished massive building projects, including the temple in Jerusalem, which God had not allowed his father David to build, but had given that honor instead to Solomon. Solomon also built grand palaces, a wall around Jerusalem for protection, and so many other big projects. But the Bible is also honest about the dark parts of Solomon's leadership. For you see, he had used forced labor of his own people to build these projects. He had put a heavy, heavy burden on the backs of his people that he was called to rule over. And in addition to that, his heart had also become divided. For you see, he had married many, many different foreign wives, and with them they brought their own gods and their own way of worshiping. And so Solomon's heart was pulled in lots of different directions. His heart went astray following these foreign gods just like his wives did. And so in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning at verse 9, it says this, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates." Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe, 
for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so you see, Solomon's divided heart will result in a divided nation. And his divided heart will have consequences, not only for him, but for the nation over which he rules. You see, his division, the division that he sowed as a leader, caused adversaries to rise up against him. And one of those adversaries was named Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was one of Solomon's officials. And Solomon at first had been so pleased with how hard Jeroboam worked that he had put him over all of the labor force of the house of Joseph. But one day there was a prophet named Ahijah who came to Jeroboam. Now, Ahijah was wearing a brand new cloak and he took it off and he tore the cloak into 12 pieces. And the prophet gave 10 of those torn pieces to Jeroboam. And he told him that God was going to give 10 tribes to Jeroboam and he would become king over them. And only two tribes would be left for Solomon and his descendants to rule over. And God was going to do this because Solomon had not been faithful to God. Well, this news gets back to Solomon, and when he hears the news, he was so angry that he tried to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam fled away to the land of Egypt, and he stayed there until Solomon died. And Scripture tells us that after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam ascended the throne. Don't get confused between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There's a lot of Hoboams going on here today. But Solomon's son is Rehoboam, and he ascends the throne, and he goes to Shechem for his coronation ceremony. But when Jeroboam heard the news that Solomon was dead, he returned from Egypt, and he met the whole assembly of Israel at Shechem. And there he confronted Rehoboam, and he said, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Well, you see, the high taxes used to finance all of the building projects and the forced labor were just more than the citizens were willing to put up with anymore. They were asking for relief And Rehoboam tells them to go away and come back in three days and he'll give them an answer. And in the meantime, Rehoboam consults with the elders who had served under his father, Solomon. And they gave him this advice. They told him to be the kind of leader that serves people. They tell him, if today you will be a servant to these people, and serve them, and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. And then Rehoboam went to a second group of people, his own peers, and he asked them the same question, what should I do? Now, these are a group of young, inexperienced, overprivileged guys, just like Rehoboam was. And so what do you think their response was? Well, they gave the exact opposite 
advice that the elders had given. They told Rehoboam, say to them, my father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And astoundingly, Rehoboam chose to listen to the advice of his friends. And so when Jeroboam came back to the king and he hears this reply, he starts a revolt and he takes with him the 10 tribes in the northern part of the kingdom, leaving Rehoboam with the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin with the capital city of Jerusalem. And Ahijah's prophecy has come to pass. Jeroboam heads north with his followers to the city of Shechem and he turns it into a fortress And he's feeling pretty good about how things have turned out when he notices that his followers are still going off to the temple in Jerusalem for worship. And that gets him to thinking. And in chapter 12, verse 27, it says, and this is Jeroboam thinking, if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of their Lord in Jerusalem, They will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to him. So you see, Jeroboam is worried about this. Why? Because he knows that when a people have a common faith, it it brings them together in unity. It would keep the tribes together instead of divided, and he needs to keep them divided if he's going to stay in power And so Jeroboam sets up a competing religion. It has its own sacrificial system, its own festivals. He made two golden calves, and he sets one up in the town of Dan and the other in the town of Bethel. And he announces that his people no longer need to worship God in Jerusalem. They can stay at home, and they can worship these idols that he has set up. And verse 30 says that this thing became a sin. but it's really no better in the southern kingdom. For you see, the divided kingdom makes Judah right for invasion from the king of Egypt. He invades the country and he sacks the palace. And chapter 14 ends with this verse. There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. A people that were once united are now divided and at war. Rehoboam dies, and his son Abijah becomes the king. And 1 Kings 15.3 says that his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God either. He rules only three years, and he dies. And then his son Asa becomes the king. And under his leadership, the southern kingdom experiences a brief rebirth, a renaissance, if you will. And the author of Scripture says that Asa heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. You see, the point that the author of the book of Kings is trying to make to us is this, that a solid faith in the truth will bring unity. Well, the northern kingdom never got the message. You see, every single one of their kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
And the northern kingdom lasted about 200 years with lots of different kings, some assassinations, even some coup d'etats. And finally, they are destroyed by this Assyrian empire in the year 722 BCE. And the southern kingdom lasts about 350 years until it is sacked and burned in 586 by the Babylonian empire. And after that, Israel was never really a free nation, free from foreign domination again. Leadership is important. It's important for nations. It's important for businesses. It's important for churches. It's important for every organization. How many of you have been to the Global Leadership Summit, the GLS that's hosted here at Anderson Hills? If you have been, you may have heard author, speaker, and leadership coach Liz Wiseman. She talks in a book and in one of her talks about two types of leaders. One is a leader who's a diminisher, and the other is a leader who is a multiplier. Now you see, diminishers are focused on themselves. They're focused on their needs rather than on the needs of others. You know, it's about their goals and their achievements. They're taking credit for everything. They, quest, they make you question your own intelligence. They shut down the, the talents and the skills and gifts of other members of their team. They never think about developing the gifts of other people um, on their team. The diminisher often sets the team up for failure or the very least for limited success. Maybe you worked for someone like that before. I remember back in the day when I was still in the business world, I had a boss like that once. Every day was tough. I'd come home exhausted, tired, questioning what I was even doing there. But on the other hand, maybe you've been fortunate enough to work for someone who is a multiplier. For you see, that kind of leader makes you feel smart and capable. They help you develop your gifts. They ensure that other people are the right person for the job on the team. You come home excited. You're energized. You wake up in the morning and you're excited to go to work. You're excited to work for a person like that. And you see, the essential trait of a multiplier is humility. It's not about them. It's about others. Jesus was the ultimate multiplier leader. Back in the first century Roman Empire into which Jesus was born, humility was not seen as a virtue. Rich and powerful people were not expected to be humble. A historian by the name of Robert Lane writes this. He says, among pagan authors, humility has almost never been a term of commendation. It was not an admired quality like it is today. I read that and I began to wonder to myself, I wonder how much has really changed. I mean, I think we give lip service to humility, don't we? But who do we elect as our leaders? Who do we put on a pedestal from Hollywood or from the sports world? I see precious little humility in the world today. So if it isn't different today and it was that way in Jesus' day, can you imagine how radical Jesus' message and his teachings would have been to his first century listeners? Imagine what a revolutionary idea the Gospel of Mark chapter 10 would have been where Jesus says these words, whoever wants to become great among you 
must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That would have been so countercultural in his day. It still is today, my friends. Because our natural response is to look after ourselves. Our world is obsessed by power and possession. Our world says that to be great, you have to be demanding and domineering and to get your own way. To get to the top, you have to know the right people. You have to step over people, step on people, get them out of your way. The world teaches us to demand our rights, to demand that our needs be satisfied to demand that our goals be fulfilled, to demand that everyone else gives us what we want. And then Jesus comes along and he teaches that the person who is really serious about being a leader has to have a whole different set of values. Jesus turns the idea of leadership upside down. The Christ-like leader is focused on helping others discover their God-given dreams and gifts. Jesus unapologetically and with no ambiguity calls every one of us to this standard. He says, I want you to be different from the rest of the world. I want you to do things that normal, pride-filled people are always unwilling to do. Jesus is calling us to leave behind our petty concerns of social status, of titles, of positions, to leave behind our wants and our desires, and to intentionally make kindness and service to other people our lifestyle. He calls us to do even simple, small things in ways that are uncharacteristic and are unexpected by the rest of the world but that lift up the dignity of all people. That's what a multiplier does. You see, God has a dream for this world, and that dream is unity. We can catch a glimpse of it in Psalm 133, where it says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. But you see, part of the brokenness of the fall and our resulting human condition is that people have a really, really hard time getting along, don't we? I mean, think about the world's first set of brothers, Cain and Abel. It's a story of conflict that ends in a killing. And then there's the brothers Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers. And in the New Testament, we have a fight between Martha and Mary, who are sisters, Jesus even had problems with his brothers. They thought he was absolutely out of his mind, and they try and get him to come back home again and give up all this craziness. And if we think about it, church really isn't all that different a lot of the time, is it? I mean, let's face it, our brothers and sisters who are sitting in the pews next to us are not always that fun to be around, right? At least some of the time. I'm talking about myself now, too. I mean, we don't stop being sinners and selfish the moment we start believing in Christ. We don't suddenly get it all together and become perfect people. 
The truth is that there are times when none of us are very fun to be around, even myself. I'm not very fun to be around. I don't like to be around myself sometimes. <laughs> if you've ever been on a church mission trip, I think you know that this is a true statement. I mean, over the years, I've learned that the first day or two of a mission trip are absolutely great. People are excited to get where they're going, to begin to serve in the capacity that they've been sent on, to meet new people and so forth. And then Wednesday hits, you know? <laughs> and everybody's getting a little tired of the cold showers and the hard floors and the strange food. And my goodness, those nice people that you worship with suddenly become weirdos and all their annoying habits come right to the surface and they make you want to snap in two and they see how weird I am and all my weird habits too and they want to snap at me. That's why I learned a long time ago that when getting a group ready to go on a mission trip, it's good to prepare them for the ine inevitability, um, for that inevitability before the mission trip even starts. Because that way you recognize it before it even begins and when you do that, it's a little easier to work your way through it. Jesus modeled unity for his first disciples, and he models it for us too. He spoke about the unity between himself and his heavenly Father, and the unity that he desires for us, you can read about in the Gospel of John. You'll find it in chapter 17. There is this prayer there that's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. You see, in this chapter, he's preparing his disciples for his death. And in this prayer, we catch a glimpse of just what's on Jesus' mind. And what we see is a concern for his followers and their relationship with each other. And he prays this in verse 22. He prays to God. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is praying that his disciples would experience the same quality of relationship with each other that Jesus had been enjoying as part of the Trinity since before time began. So what does that unity look like? Well, Scripture shows us it looks like mutual encouragement, support, love, deference, honor. In a word, it's life-giving. You see, in community, in the divine community especially, our hearts come alive. And as important as it is for followers of Christ to give and experience this unique kind of relationship, it has another purpose too, John tells us. In verse 23, it says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as I, as you have loved me. My friends, our unity is a witness to the world. It's compelling how we love each other, even in spite of our differences, will impact whether the world even believes our message or not. 
That's how high the stakes are, Jesus says. God has called this church to build a relational, transforming community where people are experiencing oneness with God and oneness with each other. And it's a community of faith whose vision is so great and whose reality is so satisfying, so unique, so compelling that our city will want to be a part of it, that God will draw people to himself through the unity of the church. But my friends, it will happen only when Christ is first in our hearts because any division that we have in our heart will show up in our relationships. You see, when my relationship with God is not what it's supposed to be, it affects my relationship with other people. And in John's gospel, chapter 6, Jesus says some controversial things that cause division with his followers. In John 6, beginning in verse 66, he says, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. At this point, Jesus turns to the twelve, his closest followers, and he says this, Do you also wish to go away? He's wondering if his best friends are going to leave him as well. Were they going to leave when their teaching got tough? When the crowds began to disappear? When the opposition around Jesus began to coalesce? And Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's answer sums it up, doesn't it? To whom shall we go? Where else will we go? Peter speaks for every single one of us who have encountered God's grace in Jesus. Peter and the other disciples had left everything, hadn't they? Their jobs, their homes, some of them their families to follow Jesus. They weren't turning back and neither are we when we experience God's grace in Jesus Christ. We burn some bridges behind us. We blaze new trails. Once you have a relationship with Jesus, you don't want to go back to the old way of your life or to anything else either. It just doesn't compare. I think if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Son of God, if we could be completely convinced that following Jesus would lead to an eternity of bliss and worship and joy in the presence of the Lord, we would do whatever it takes. We'd swim any ocean. We'd climb any mountain. We'd jump over any hurdle. We'd give away everything we own to possess that gift. But the way of faith is not like that. It's not always filled with complete certainty. In fact, it never is. It wasn't that way for Jesus' first disciples. I mean, think about it. They saw firsthand his miracles. They saw the signs and the wonders. They saw his anointed teachings. They saw Lazarus come back from the dead. They saw Jesus raised from the dead. And yet in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, when Jesus is about ready to ascend into heaven and he's standing there with the 11 disciples who remain, Matthew writes these words. They said, when they saw him, 
they worshiped him, but some doubted. Can you believe that? Some still doubted. I mean, they weren't 100% sure by that time. That's exactly what Matthew means to get across to us in that verse. That's what that means. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of the doubters, Jesus chose those first disciples to continue the movement that he had begun and to build his church to spread throughout the world. Doubts were okay with Jesus for those first disciples. And I think that teaches us that doubts are okay for us too. They don't disqualify us. They don't kick us out of the running. But you know, eventually every single one of those disciples chose to know and chose to believe that Jesus was the Christ, even if they didn't have all their answers answered. For choosing to know and choosing to believe is just that. It's a choice that we have to make. Just like those first disciples had to make that choice. My friends, there are very few guarantees in life. But the one guarantee we do have is that we, if we put our faith in Jesus, he'll never fail us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never let us down. Jesus guarantees that if we align our hearts with his message of truth, that he will absolutely stake his life on your eternity. Jesus guarantees that if you put your trust and hope in him, if you make him your number one, that he will guide you to an eternity with God the Father. So let me ask you this morning, are you done with having a divided heart? Are you willing to say no to yourself so that you can say yes to God? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be 100% committed to the leadership and the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to commit yourself to a group of imperfect people who are also committed to his lordship? If you are, then God is your one true king and you are ready to follow him wherever he might lead you. And so today we want to give you an opportunity to be one of his followers. And it starts with surrendering your life to Jesus. You don't have to have everything figured out already. It's not what you know. It's about relationship. You don't have to get your life all in order first. You don't have to clean up your act first. Jesus will do that part. You just surrender. My friends, it's by his grace that we are saved. You can't work your way there. You just have to let go and let God and come as you are. It's an attitude of surrender that God is looking for. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks for the gift of Jesus. We give you thanks for the gift of Jesus who is the word made flesh and your message from his word today that reminds us that when our hearts are divided, when we put anything on the throne ahead of Jesus on the throne, that it has terrible consequences. 
for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for our churches, for our nations, for the world. Jesus, we want to follow you. We want you to be first in our life. So help us forego anything else, Lord, that we have ever put on the throne before you. Give us an undivided heart, an undivided mind. Help us to say yes to you, to surrender to you, to make you Lord of our life. And then, Lord, lead us. Lead us forward into the glorious future that you hold for us. Let us live lives of servanthood and servitude, serving others, putting others before ourselves, looking to build others up, to give them the credit, to be the least, so that we might be first in your kingdom. We pray, God, that we would have hearts of surrender to you, and we know that that's going to be more than enough for you to go to work and accomplish your good and perfect purposes in our lives. We pray this in the name of, for the sake of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.